Well, let me tell you, Rachel, if there should be one wake-up call that I hope our listeners really hear, it's that pay attention to your bodies because there are certain diseases that are quite deadly that present themselves with very vague symptoms that may be reminiscent of things that are not so serious. So pay attention to your bodies. That's what I have to say. Yeah, it's really amazing when you learn more about the symptoms that are common across, as you said, some, you know, conditions that are not serious and not life-threatening. And you might also have the same symptoms for something that is very serious. So if there's another theme to take away, it's that we can do better. We can diagnose more quickly if we're investing in the tools to to get information and prevent a lot of unnecessary pain, heartache, and expense. So we're looking forward to hearing from this amazing founder who's taking that approach of the need for early information and better diagnostics to the space of ovarian cancer. Welcome to the business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschroll. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We're so excited to welcome our guest today, Ariana Papin-Zogby, who is the CEO and founder of AOA, which is a really interesting approach that I believe resulted from your own personal experience. Welcome. Hi, happy to be here. So tell us about the journey to get to this company, what inspired it, and where you are. Sure. How much time you got? <laughs> so um, I've, uh, I've been in women's health ever since I started my career, studied economics at Boston University. Um, at some point, thought I would be a doctor. Um, my mother, that's the journey I thought I would take. Um, and I was unaware of sort of a career that, that allowed and this passion for the sciences, but not necessarily a physician or a nurse or, or, or something um, as straightforward that you think the sciences would go. And so I was at a career fair um, at Boston University my senior year, and I met this um, early stage company called Amnesia International that were working on a test to be able to diagnose rupture of fetal numbers, which is essentially when a woman's water breaks, um, but ahead of labor, which can cause immense complications. Long story short, I started there um, from the early stages until acquisition of the company, went on and worked with the acquiring company uh, for many years, took me through, moved to Germany. I, I worked on HPV screening in East Africa, some incredible people um, working for an incredible cause when I get a woman screened in the most remote areas of the world. So this journey in women's health continued. Um, from there, joined a, uh, an early stage company again called Parthenogen Diagnostics, also focused in the maternal fetal me- medicine space. So that's 10 years of this interest in woman's health. I think what's particularly unique is that all of those steps I did with both of my co-founders. So wow. I met them at Amnature. Um, we went through that journey, went through the acquisition together, went through Parsonton together, sold Parsonton together. And then the three of us essentially said, okay, there is a huge gap in innovation for women's health. We know the diagnosis space so well. We have a network in it. 
None of us are scientists. So how can we leverage what we know, what we're passionate about to help with this gap? And that's essentially when we went out to try to partner with scientists, academics, those that are actually inventing, um, but lack that translation part of how do you actually get this to industry to the point where patients and providers can benefit from it. Um, so it was about a year of going to conferences, uh, meeting doctors, meeting academics, tech transfer offices, patent offices, scouring posters, until eventually we were introduced to Professor Saragovi who essentially was working on a really exciting and novel way to be able to diagnose ovarian cancer early. Um, and we can dive into the details of their interest, but long story short, about a year into us uh, really investigating and, and, and understanding you know, what, what the market was and where the need was, we decided to officially partner with him and license the technology um, and build AOA around that. Wow. I'm so curious. That is an incredible journey. And it uh, sounds, I'll say maybe almost as exciting as uh, becoming a doctor, but probably more so. Um, my curiosity is why ovarian cancer? Is it just because this was a mentor and you really believed in what he was doing? Or was it because ovarian, because ovarian cancer is a scary disease and surely affects lots of people, but it's not the most common cancer for women. Um, so I'm just curious why, why that? Absolutely. It was a combination of both. So we started out with where are there big problems that need solutions? Ovarian cancer was one of them, and I'll dive into why in a second. Endometriosis was another. Um, preeclampsia was another. So we had these big sort of disease areas where we had mapped and said there is a need for innovation because there isn't something sufficiently good for women today. And then from there, we went and tried to match with, okay, but where is there some research, some like foundation that's already been building that we can leverage on top of? And that's where we combine the two. And you're absolutely right that to say that ovarian cancer is not the most common cancer, but it is the fifth deadliest cancer for women. So while the incidence is low, unfortunately, the death rate is incredibly high, primarily for two reasons. There is no diagnostic test today, excuse me, which means that in turn, 80% of women are diagnosed when they're already stage three and four. And by that point, the five-year survival rate is only 28%. But we know, we know that if we diagnose at stage one and two, the survival rate is significantly greater, over 90%. So what if we caught the disease earlier? Why is there no way to do that today? Why is there no way to diagnose that? And that's essentially the journey that we embarked on. So when you went out to investors, you know, here you were, a well-oiled team, <clears throat> if you will. Um, and we all, we've discussed many times the challenges of raising money as female founders in, in this space, in this part of the body. Um, was it something compelled? Was that part of the compelling um, nature of your story that you had been a team that had successfully built and sold companies before? 100%. I think especially in the feed stage, I would say it's probably more common to invest in team and idea. And I think that worked for us incredibly well. We were a team that had been in women's health, that had been together for a decade, that had exited companies, that had built technologies. Um, so there was, I think, this um, comfort with investors that, okay, they perhaps know what they're doing. You know, it's always different every time you come around. And we were very transparent from the beginning. While we'd done this before, this is our first time as founders. So we'd been employees one, two, and three. We'd been there from the beginning all the way through exit, um, but we'd never been founders. And that journey is immensely di different. Yes. So we shared that upfront with our investor, but we also shared what we knew. And I think what also translated was this 
passion for women's health. It wasn't that, it's not something that we stumbled upon, not something that was opportunistic. You know, we have a history, we have a track record in it because we're passionate about it. I'm curious, when you diagnose this or see this in your office, I mean, describe the experience from a practitioner standpoint of not historically having the tools for early diagnosis. How does this change the game for you? Yeah, it changes it a lot. And I was going to ask if you could explain why is this a better mousetrap than the not such great ones that we have. You know, the, the usual scenario is not fun. It's somebody comes in for their yearly exam, which is truly once a year. And either you feel something that's quite frightening on exam or somebody has complaints and gets imaging that shows uh, findings that are immediately very frightening. And there you go with your stage three disease, which is typically when this is diagnosed. Uh, you know, we've spoken about the symptoms of ovarian cancer being somewhat vague, being very similar to other gastrointestinal issues, or some women are just so busy, they kind of ignore these vague symptoms, or their clinicians may not be paying them as much attention as they should be. Uh, no blame there. It's just a very difficult disease to uh, pick up. Um, and then off they go to a G1 oncologist, because that's the, really their best step uh, for first uh, first uh, shot at treatment. Um, and right now what we have is imaging, usually ultrasound, and we have a blood test called CA125, which is not ideal. It was originally intended to follow somebody who already had ovarian cancer to see whether there might be recurrence or if their treatment uh, was working. And, you know, Fortunately or unfortunately, we also use it for sort of, you know, very uh, gross screening, but it's not a perfect test by any means. So please uh, enlighten me on how this newer technology may be working. Yeah, I think you nailed it, Alyssa. Um The reality is that the symptoms are vague. You know, they're bloating, abdominal pain, changes in bowel movements. How many women that have experienced that most months? Um, um, and the tools are imaging, ultrasound, which... Um, you know, can only detect the mass once it's in a already a certain size, which for most of the time, quite late. Or as you described, say 125, which is to date only cleared by the FDA for monitoring of disease. So it's not even approved in this population, but for lack of an alternative, physicians try to use it. Now, the challenge with CA125 is that it's not specific for ovarian cancer. So often the blood levels are elevated in a number of conditions, such as endometriosis, such as pelvic inflammatory disease. And so a lot of the time, correct me if I, you know, if I'm to say this, but it's a wait and see approach. Come back again in three months. Let's see if those levels are rising before we refer to oncology. The reason being is once you get to oncology, the only way to diagnose disease is through a biopsy. But to do that biopsy, it involves the removal of at least one ovary and one fallopian tube. So you can imagine if everybody with the symptoms was just sent off to oncology, how much more unnecessary surgeries we would have. Today, that's already 50%. 50% of women that go on to the referral did not have a malignant mass, but they've had their organs removed already. So what are we going to do that's different? Well, with our assay, we've essentially um, discovered the utility of two novel biomarkers, not say 125, two markers, very different, that we're incorporating in an algorithm that allows us to be much more specific and sensitive to ovarian cancer. This is primarily focused on early detection. So we have extremely high sensitivity in stage one and two, as well as stage three and four. And this allows for when that patient comes into the clinic, whether it's, you know, that exam, that, uh, the annual that, um, that uh, Alyssa said where, you know, they're complaining of symptoms or they're already just complaining of symptoms um, that have become persistent. 
from that first appointment, they can actually use this blood test and accurately diagnose ovarian cancer without the wait and see, without having to go through unnecessary procedures and the ability to catch the disease much earlier. Now, uh, I don't want to get the cart before the horse because we have just um, we just finalized the latest study uh, with the latest data, data um, and it's gone forward um, for um, peer review publication. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the process, so I can't share too much right now until it's accepted in the journal. But hopefully, very soon it'll be out. Maybe by the time the episode is out, uh, and we'll be able to share all the data from the latest study where we looked at over 500 women. So we um, actually interviewed somebody on Business of the Bee who spoke about a pretty novel test to distinguish whether someone who already had an ovarian mass was dealing with ovarian cancer or benign mass. Again, all in an effort to try to prevent unnecessary surgery. I assume the testing you're speaking of doesn't require any mass to be there. It's just a screening test. That's exactly right. So it, it's the way that we've designed it right now and we'll be testing out in clinical study is it is a symptomatic test, but one of the symptoms may be um, a mass. It does not have to have a mass. So the symptoms can also include um, bloating, abdominal pain, changes in bowel movement, and, and such things as well. So it's in the presence of a mass or without a mass. So at the beginning, you shared some frightening statistics about the percentage um, that are diagnosed in stage three and four and their survival rates. Um, do you have a, uh, a goal or are you leaning towards a direction that you can capture, you could diagnose this percent and it's or more of it is in stage one and people have live longer lives? Like what is what is sort of the the end goal for what you're yeah. trying to accomplish? Because it sounds like there's a lot of work to do in this space. There's a statistic that's been published in literature that if we could catch even 50 percent more of the cases early, we could save. 75% of women diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And that's essentially what we're going after. Can we catch even half of them earlier? The goal would be most of them, but even half of them saves three quarters of the women diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Wow. Quick quick round, blood test or other type of testing? Blood test. Standard Is blood it blood. a, yep, screening for general population or those at risk or all comers? So right now we're starting in the symptomatic population. So women that complain of certain symptoms to their physician. Um, the next step we are looking at are high risk, an example being the BRCA population. Um, so those are um, screening for the further BRCA population. And then further down the line, all comer screening. It is a very staged approach, um, primarily from a clinical burden of proof, regulatory. Um, and so our first step to be able to get the test on the market soonest is to look at the symptomatic population, especially because as you said earlier, now we know ovarian yeah. cancer is symptomatic. Over 90% of women experience symptoms. They're just vague. So they've been so hard yeah. for physicians to just pinpoint to ovarian cancer. Yeah, no question. We, we used to refer to this as the silent type of disease. It really isn't silent. It's just kind of under-recognized. Sure. And then, of course, the bane of my existence, you know, everybody's going to want to have this test because why wouldn't they? And, you know, what about insurance? Because it just seems that they, they, they really lag in covering uh, newer uh, newer technology. Absolutely. So we're already working on our reimbursement approach, which is uh, two steps. The third step is in debate with Congress right now, so I will hold my breath for that one. Um, the first is there are already existing codes that we have identified with our insurance partners that we can leverage to start to get this reimbursed right when we get out the door. Yeah. Um, the second is to be able to develop our own code as well. The reason we believe that we'll be able to do this is because there is a huge value at the payer. The first, all those women that go on to that surgery that do not need to have that surgery, 
not only are we not losing organs, but that there's a huge cost savings for payers. The second is we know the cost of treatment of early stage disease is significantly less expensive than late stage disease. Ovarian cancer is the second most expensive cancer to treat right now, second only to brain. And women that are diagnosed stage three and four have a 96% reoccurrence rate. That's multiple rounds of treatment. And they still don't survive. Versus women that are diagnosed early only have a 14% reoccurrence rate. So we have a hell of a story for payers, right? You can catch that disease earlier. You are avoiding unnecessary surgeries and you're reducing the cost of treatment and you're saving lives. And, 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 and the impact on the family and the impact, and the impact on, on the family and yeah. unnecessary surgeries and treatment and, you know, what they and do? employment oh. and childcare and fill and, and fill all of the above, what they even go through sitting and waiting, once, come back again in three months, come back again and not knowing what's wrong with them, knowing that something is wrong, but not knowing what it is only to find out nine months later, because in the U.S. it takes nine months to diagnose ovarian cancer, that it's yeah. cancer and that it's likely terminal. That's what we're trying to change. Yeah, that's a very moving story, really. Uh, the story that you are going to tell. And I think that, uh, you know, that will resonate. And it should, because in the long run, it's going to uh, to save lives, but save money, of course, which is what they're mostly interested in. Yeah. So here's today's hot flash. Did you know that ovarian cancer is the fifth most common cause of cancer deaths in women? Eight in 10 women have symptoms when their cancer is early four in five will be misdiagnosed, and one in four wait over six months to get a correct diagnosis. So where are you from a, a timing perspective in the, a perfect world, um, which we don't live in? When do you expect to have this available and what is your go-to-market launch strategy? I know that I'll laugh when in a few years I go back and listen to this episode and, and say, well, what did I say in that episode? But in a perfect world, if things continue to go the way that they are going, we expect to have the assay on the market in 2025. It's about three years from now. Um, last year, we raised a successful seed round. We brought on some fantastic investors that really allowed us to expedite a lot of the development and clinical work that we're doing right now. Uh, we envision, you know, next steps, which are to conduct prospective clinical trials in the U.S. and internationally. We're not thinking only U.S., we're really thinking globally um, to be able to increase access to women all over the world and pursue the necessary regulatory approvals. Um, when it comes to go-to-market, this is my area of expertise. I come from a sales background. I was a sales rep from the early days to building sales teams to managing uh, global distributors. And so in key markets, um, such as the U.S. certain markets in Europe, we envision having a direct sales team to go to market, which involves working both with the physicians, so those that are actually um, drawing the blood and, and, and prescribing the test, as well as the lab where this assay will be run. And then um, for uh, international markets, we would work with very specific women's health distributors. Again, a network that we already have that exists from selling various products in the women's health community already. Do you have testimonials or responses. I mean, I, I can only imagine for people who have been through this to hear this story and know that there could or will be a better way. What are you hearing in terms of testimonials from people in the clinicals that you can share? Yeah, all the time. And um, I think ranging from big press stories to check out our LinkedIn because we have stories from survival all the time. I mean, I think the most uh, prominent one came out when Christian Amanfor was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and her statement on CNN 
said, and I'm paraphrasing, was there is a need for early diagnosis to be able to give women a chance of survival. That is the same message that we hear from if, if you know, I, I encourage everyone to check out our LinkedIn and see those um, images of the survivors on there that, that I wish I had been diagnosed sooner. I wish I hadn't been in this round robin. On average in the U.S., women go to four different specialties before they reach a diagnosis. And so we hear this all the time. We've received letters of support from um, various organizations in the ovarian, esteemed organizations in the ovarian cancer phase, clinical researchers, physicians who have told us we desperately need something to be able to better manage patients in the clinic. Um, so there is a lot of support for early diagnosis. Um, and so far, I would say, um, obviously, we don't know what others are brewing. Um, but right now, from what we see, uh, we, we aim to be the first to get there to really bring something to market in, in early diagnosis. Interesting. And is this the only test that your company is working on? Because... You know, you brought up endometriosis. Again, delay of diagnosis usually averaged seven years. Some thoughts that there's a link between endometriosis and ovarian cancer, although that is theor theoretical. Uh, any cross-reactivity here? Um, there are, not specifically in endometriosis, although I know a lot of incredible founders, female founders that are working in this space, but we are looking and, and we're expanding to expand in other cancers as well. So the platform essentially that we've developed is looking at this new class of myomarkers, a little technical, but they're called the ganglioside. Essentially, they've never been exploited before in diagnosis. And we know that there are a number of different markers that span different cancers. And so we're building this matrix and generating data to understand what other cancers can we go after, that um, there is a need for early diagnosis, that there is nothing on the market today, and that can benefit from a blood test. For example, there are two brain cancers today that are uh, things that we are looking into that fit that description. It's very hard to get a brain biopsy and, it, and it's also really challenged with early diagnosis. So we're looking to expand our portfolio and this summer we're actually doing a lot of expansion studies to go into other cancers as well. Well, the HPV story you mentioned is a successful one, well, you know, not because of testing being so much better, but it is actually really evolving with HPV testing to screen for cervical cancer and that may very well uh, and very soon become the standard of care every five years. So Oh, it's interesting. Absolutely. And that's for me where I became so passionate about testing. When I learned that cervical cancer is the only entirely preventable cancer in the world, and that it hadn't been, I was mind blown. And to sound maybe a little um, forward, if this had been a man's cancer, uh, predominantly men's cancer, I think we would have eradicated it by now. And so this idea that it increased the testing, just test, you're not treating, you're not, you're not being invasive, but an increase to testing could really eradicate the cancer. It just it fueled the passion in me around diagnosis, around the value of information. And I think for the longest time, you know, in vitro diagnostics and diagnosis in general was kind of the black sheep of the tech and biotech industry, right? You got pharma, you got treatment, you got med devices and diagnostics, all the challenge with reimbursement and the ever old deal of how do you commercialize diagnostics. And then COVID hit and everybody realized yep the power of information, the power of knowing a diagnosis. And I hope that change is here to stay because how can you treat, how can you intervene, how can you do anything without a diagnosis? And COVID for all the terrible, terrible pain it brought to so many and to society at large, one of the things it did do is really change the conversation, not just about diagnostics, but about information and how women respond differently, how they have different symptomology for certain things. And hearing the, this refrain over and over again that Alyssa mentioned, 
seven years on average to diagnose something that could affect your fertility. And those are incredibly important years and your quality of life and everything else. So, you know, I love the theme that you're on is let's diagnose early, let's diagnose better, let's avoid unnecessary surgery and really improve the whole system. It's not just payers who will respond to this. It's human beings. Absolutely. Of all genders, of all genders all over the world. Well, thank you so much. It's so interesting to learn more and to hear about your journey and your passion is so clear and contagious. And we just want to wish you continued progress and forward motion in your in your efforts. Thank you both so much for having me today. I love this conversation. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.